Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast that joins the dots between health and human rights around the world, from Oakland to Okinawa and everywhere in between. If you are enjoying the show and have friends that would find the subjects we cover interesting, please tell them about us. You can subscribe to our show at all fine purveyors of podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. Like us and give us five stars. You can also follow us at Facebook and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. This week coincides with LGBTQ pride events all over the world, and a shot in the arm has teamed up with Impact, Global Action for Gay Men's Health and Human Rights. We held a panel discussion recorded at the LGBTQ Centre in Oakland on June the 26th, 2019. We talked about the challenges facing communities around the world. What have we learned? Where do we go from here? I'm deeply grateful to George Ayala and Greg Tartaglioni for working with us, giving us the opportunity to share the discussion beyond the four walls of the event itself. Talking of four walls, our huge thanks go also to Joe Hawkins of the Oakland LGBTQ Centre for hosting us. So here it is, Impact and a Shot in the Arm podcast, The Point of Pride. Okay, welcome to this very special event, The Point of Pride, organized by Impact, Global Action for Gay Men's Health and Human Rights. It's here in the LGBTQ Center in the heart of Oakland, California, which is the center of the universe. And we're also recording this as part of a Shot in the Arm podcast, a health and human rights, global health and human rights podcast. Before we get started and before I introduce the panel to you, I would love to take this opportunity to welcome Joe Hawkins, who is the executive director of the LGBTQ Center here in Oakland. And Joe, if you would love to say, yeah, you've got to use a microphone. Hello, everyone. So uh, I'm the executive director and the co-founder of this center, and my co-founder is Jeff Myers, who is also our board president. We're not yet two years open, and I'm also the co-founder of Oakland Pride. I don't know if you've ever, if any of you have ever been to Oakland Pride. And when um, I wrote the mission statement for Oakland Pride years ago, in that mission statement was that Pride would facilitate the creation and the development of a center. Um, it never happened because they needed to make sure that they could keep pride going. So when Donald Trump, I don't know how many of you remember, I live in Adams Point right over here. And when Donald Trump was elected, we many of us went to the lake and held hands around the lake. I don't know if any of you were there, but it made the front of the paper. And that moment, my co-founder Jeff and I decided it's time. And so we're here. We provide services from for zero to five-year-olds, families, youth, people in recovery, elders. And it's all provided with the support of the community. Uh, we just got a grant for youth. So we'll be having a youth leadership program, we, which we got from the city a $300,000 grant, so we're very excited about that. But welcome to the center and connect with us, and thank you guys. Welcome, Impact. Thanks, Joe. I'm just going to introduce the panel in, in just a second, but the point of this session is, well, the point of pride. We will discuss what are the challenges facing the LGBTQI communities around the world, what have we learned, and what's the future so our panel, alphabetically, is George Ayala from Impact, Julie Dorf from the Council for Global Equality, Anna Montano from AIDS Legal Referral Panel, and Nicole Santamaria from ELA Para Translatinas, who is a week in this job, so congratulations. No, a month. <laughs> oh, month, a month, I'm sorry, month. a month. Yeah. So the flow for tonight is that we'll have a few questions that we've prepared and want to ask, and then we'll open it up to the floor. We'll, as I said, record this, and hopefully it'll go out prior to Pride itself with a chance to bring the issues that we think are really important to a broader audience around the world. 
So I would ask the panel, first of all, can you talk a bit about these challenges? What is your agency's work and focus? How is it linked to the global fight for LGBTI rights? And how did you get involved personally? So perhaps we can start with the host of this evening, George Ayala from Impact. Thank you very much, Ben. And uh, thank you, Oakland LGBT Center, for hosting us tonight. Um, I'm the executive director of Impact Global Action for Gay Men's Health and Rights, which is an organization dedicated to ensuring equitable access to HIV services for gay men and other men who have sex with men worldwide while promoting health and human rights. And um, we got established actually in 2006 by a group of activists who were really quite worried about uh, the disproportionate uh, HIV disease burden being shouldered by gay men everywhere in the world. But at that time, no one was talking about the problem. And, um, and so the, this group of activists kind of formed um, the organization to continue to raise visibility and public awareness about how HIV happens in gay communities around the world and to ensure that global institutions don't forget about us. Um, and for me, uh, HIV uh, is a human rights issue everywhere in the world and uh, including in the US. And it's an, it's, it's a, an LGBTI issue because so many of our communities struggle to get access to the services that they need around the world. And the barriers that they face on the way to service include stigma and discrimination. In some countries, uh, gay men and transgender women are harassed. Uh, they face uh, violence. Uh, they face blackmail. Um, and in some countries, we're criminalized. We're, we run the risk of getting arrested and put in jail uh, as we're going to uh, try to secure the services that we want and need. So it is an LGBTI rights issue. It is a human rights issue. Uh, from a public health perspective, it is also a right to health issue. And uh, our work is very much uh, revolves around the need to kind of make people aware, to energize uh, gay men and, and LGBTQ communities worldwide around these issues. Um, Gay men and trans women, uh, lesbians have been at the forefront of the response uh, in every country, including here in the United States. We were the first to kind of rally behind our own communities, to take care of our own communities, to fight against stigma and discrimination, uh, to fight government who really refused to acknowledge the problem. And this repeats itself everywhere in the world. So it's important that we support activists who are on the front line fighting for their own communities. Um, Anna Montano from uh, the AIDS Legal Referral Panel. Tell us a bit about your agency and how you're linked to LGBT rights and how you actually got involved. So I'm an immigration attorney at the AIDS Legal Referral Panel. Um, the organization is, I think, almost 35 years old now, and it was started by um, lawyer activists at the beginning of the um, HIV epidemic when people were dying very quickly and a lot of these lawyers, you know, had to run to the hospital to do wills and what have you uh, for, for folks that were dying at the time. Uh, since then, it has grown and um, ALRP provides pro bono attorneys for folks that are HIV positive and have a legal issue, legal problem. Um, the immigration is one of the newer programs along with the eviction defense, which we currently have. But otherwise, it's very much um, uh, civil law. And um, we have maybe, I think right now we have 10 in-house attorneys, but we have a panel of, let's say, over 500 attorneys that are either solo practitioners or from large firms that also take cases uh, from us. So it's a pretty robust program. Um, so that's my agency, the AIDS Legal Referral Panel. I also work for a not, another nonprofit called um, LGBTI Legal Justice Clinic El Salvador, Asistencia Legal para la Diversidad Sexual del Salvador. And um, it's also a nonprofit, but its work is primarily in El Salvador to support the human rights and the work of the LGBTI community there. In, in that regard, I have actually worked with Nicole in the past in El Salvador. She's a great uh, activist, 
and also Julie has supported us, and so has George. <laughs> so I'm surrounded by friends. So Julie, Julie Dorf, the Council for Global Equality. Again, tell us a bit about your your work, linkage with global LGBTI human rights, and how you got involved. Well, I've been doing this work for over 30 years, actually. Um, and I know it, I'm, I started an organization when I was 25, but in college I started working on LGBT rights issues in the Soviet Union and and then started what's now Outright International, the international used to be the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, and have worked in this com- local community from in the Bay Area, worked with Horizons Foundation and, and a couple other groups. And for the last 10 years, I've been working on U.S. foreign policy and trying to really pull the threads of my own career and the, the privilege of really working with amazing, courageous activists everywhere in the world and linking that to the, the power and the privilege of this country um, and U.S. foreign policy. Obviously, we're in a different era right now, which I'm sure we'll talk about. <clears throat> and I think I'm going to be your optimist tonight on this panel because we are in such a horrible period politically. And if anyone's been watching the news today, you just really want to cry kind of every hour about, you know, whatever is the next new low, right? The kids in detention today, right? It's on, I'm seeing everyone nodding. I mean, you just kind of can't get out of a really hard time. Um, and yet, you know, from a historical perspective, LGBT rights have made enormous strides. And in just this last month alone, um, we have saw marriage equality in Ecuador and an incredible pride march in Quito, the largest they've ever had. We saw marriage equality in Taiwan. I loved yesterday's news item that 1,200 people got, have been married since May 24th and two have been divorced. <laughs> we saw decriminalization in Botswana, um, which helped to assuage some of the pain of losing on the first round in Kenya. Um, and even in Bhutan, uh, they decriminalized through a penal code reform that didn't even involve civil society. So, you know, as human rights activists, we tend to focus on the worst places in the world, and we should, because people deserve our support and our attention. And we also have to remember the opportunities and the places that are making progress, because that's actually what's going to fuel all of us, ultimately. And Nicole, Nicole Santa Maria, tell us about a bit about your agency, its linkages with uh, LGBTI global rights, and, and a bit about your story, how you got involved. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I'm Nicole Santa Maria. I'm a queer, indigenous, feminist, <laughs> immigrant women from El Salvador. I fled El Salvador in 2015. Uh, I became a survivor one more time. So I ended up uh, here in the United States in 2015. I arrived in Washington, D.C. And I've been doing this work for over 15 years now, uh, directly linked with the women movement in the feminist movement, but also with a perspective for LGBTQI plus communities. So it is linked for me with for many reasons and for different uh, points of view and for really because it is part of my life. Uh, so, yeah, uh, what can I say about ELA para Translatinas? ELA para Translatinas, it's an organization that also started as a response for HIV impact in trans communities, particular immigrant, uh, transgender non-conforming uh, immigrants from Latin America. So now uh, ELA has been founded 13 years ago, and it is a very important program for all those folks that are trans or gender non-conforming trying to flee or flood their countries in order to survive in this country in particular. So we have been seeing different needs and different impacts about immigration actually, and we have been doing that work collaborative with different other organizations. So uh, you might be very aware that LGBTQI issues as uh, has been mentioned before, it is a human rights issue. Immigration is a human rights issue right now here in different parts of the world. So, and HIV is also linked with this need to be addressed, that needs to be addressed. So, yeah, we are raising our voices for those uh, trans women that have losing their lives inside of ICE detention centers and uh, 
related with HIV, you know, for the uh, lack of access of uh, medicine or medical treatment. So we are here to make us visible more than we already are and bring those voices that has been lost in the past here in our communities and create awareness of that. Thank you, Nicole. Mm -hmm. um, so, George, a question for you, and, and I think we've all touched on it. The, the fight for LGBTI and Q rights is something that has been inextricably linked with HIV. And in many ways, during the plague years, it's what helped keep us together. But how do you see things now? And how do you see the linkage between HIV uh, and LGBTIQ rights? Yeah, I, I see the linkage in how HIV happens around the world. And uh, HIV, contrary to what a lot of people think, HIV is not evenly distributed in, in the world. And uh, it, it actually uh, disproportionately impacts gay men and trans women, among other populations like sex workers and people who use drugs. And when you, when you take a look at the people who are disproportionately impacted by HIV, those are the same people who are also targets for violence, targets for stigma and discrimination. And in many places, the, the targets of criminal law, punitive law. And so, and we've learned here in the United States, and I think everywhere in the world, we're learning that if we don't address LGBT rights, if we don't address human rights, we won't get ahead in the response to HIV. And where we are making the most progress, it's, it's places that respect and protect the rights of LGBTQI uh, populations and uh, sex worker rights and, and protects the rights of people who use drugs. Uh, and when we do that, we see you know, better results, better outcomes in the response to HIV. So th that's how I see the connection. In many places around the world, you know, our communities are afraid to go to get services that they need because they know that getting to the place um, of services means, you know, running the risk of, you know, being the targets of violence on the way to clinic or when they show up to clinic, you know, facing receptionists and nurses and doctors who really make them feel terrible about who they are. That's not our HIV response. And until we, re we address those things, we won't get ahead in, in the HIV response. Um, and as long as our communities are criminalized, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that we can get out in front of HIV in a meaningful way. Thank you, George. Nicole, um, I had a really simplistic question. Like, can you talk about the challenges faced by trans people around the world? But, but maybe a better way of asking the question is, you know, here we are in the Oakland LGBTQ Center how how is a movement is the T being embraced and what are the challenges that trans people face? Well, definitely I think that we can do much better in the inclusion of the trans folks and also not only trans folks, also gender non-conforming and all the spectrum of the non-binary, you know, because, um, yeah, trans community are facing huge uh, challenges under systems of oppression. So for example, in El Salvador, and also that's something that I've been noticing here uh, in United States is the, for example, how uh, the myths around gender identity, gender expression are also being very present here in US. And many of our trans folks coming from different parts of the world are also being criminalized here and also facing the same challenges that are risking their lives and make them more vulnerable that they already are. So meanwhile, patriarchy exists. Meanwhile, heteronormatives exist. It's gonna be very challenging as well to have a better approach and get better, uh, a better assessment for our needs. And also those patterns and all systems of oppression is needed to have the conscious and the awareness that also are also present in our communities. Being LGBTQI or being part of the sexual diversity doesn't make you feel free of hatred or biases or uh, misogynia. So our trans communities, particularly trans women, are facing misogynia inside of the same movement. And that's something that we need to, to be aware and address and see 
how many trans friends we have, who is invited in this conversation, who is missing, and why. And is this person, is this trans friend or this gender nonconforming friend, it is also someone that looks like me, someone that speaks the same language that I do. And imagine all the barriers that this community are facing. So it is a very uh, huge approach and a huge way to see the different challenges that a trans person uh, might have according with the intersectionalities that they are facing, race, language, uh, legal status. So, and that means the lack or the opportunities that they might or might not have in order to seek help and get access to services. And, and, and Julie, I'd sort of like to follow up on, on the remarks that were just made because you, so I've been dying to ask you this question, okay, for a few years. Um, some people have been saying, and I'm sure you've had this conversation with folks saying, oh, you know, we got marriage equality in the US, game over, nothing to see folks, let's move on. But from your experience and your, um, and, and you and I have been at this um, as teenagers and continue to be <laughs> teenagers, um, but from your, from your experience around the world, is this over? Um, what do we need to do next? Oh, I think if, if anything, these last two years have shown how, how much it is not over. Um, and hmm, how to even begin answering that question. Um, obviously, you know, any legal protection that is gained anywhere in the world, and, you know, the, 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 African, the South African example is often given to show, you know, they had marriage equality, they got sexual orientation in the constitution post-apartheid and yet you know the to to your point the the misogyny the racism the structural inequalities are so great that you know a, a typical black lesbian in south africa is fairly likely to be raped in her life and because of her sexual orientation um, so clearly legal protection alone does not remove bias and, and inequality. And I think, I think if anything, during our, our LGBTQI plus communities have really gotten the intersectionality of issues post-Trump in a, in a much deeper way, thankfully. Um, and really, I think for the first time, immigration issues are LGBT issues. And that that isn't such a, you don't have to push too hard to even your most privileged white gay male to really understand that connection. And so if there's, here I'm going to be the optimist again, that I think on the other side of the Trump administration, I think we're going to see a lot more effort from our community and others of really addressing the deeper structural questions. I think tonight on the Democratic debate stage, I think you're going to see a big division between, well, I won't say who which candidates, but, you know, between those who are addressing, you know, the symptoms versus the causes of what's wrong in our country. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm fairly um, happy to say that, you know, marriage, I'm, a, I'm a big marriage equality activist. I, you know, it's an important goal. It makes people's lives, you know, it addresses many things in addition uh, to seeming like a, you know, kind of conventional structure. But I do, um, I do think that there's a, many other things. And I think that actually marriage equality as a goal has actually opened up people's, you know, people's eyes to many of the other issues, including trans issues. I mean, I think there's actually a direct connection. Um, and I think it might open up some funding for other, for other things as well, because I think it did bring in both straight and wealthy gay money in a, in a new, at a new volume in this country. Um, I also have the privilege of advising a group of individual donors who were big marriage donors, and they're still marriage donors globally, um, but they're you know, looking at putting their money outside of the US and outside of Europe. And, and you know, so these, th those are all benefits to other aspects of our equality. Thank you. Anna, I mean, we, we think of legal action <clears throat> and whatever country it is, we think of legal action and we think of it as a means to resist. But it can also be an opportunity, and I think that's what Julie and Nicole pointed to, there's an opportunity to promote equality through law as well as 
uh, having to get in there and do emergency action. What are your thoughts on that? And what would you say to us are the real priorities? Well, <clears throat> certainly, I would say the, Uni the United States is almost incomparable to what's going on in other countries, right? And I'll compare it to El Salvador, which is where I have the most experience in terms of comparison. Whatever happens in the United States is usually kind of the benchmark, let's say, for El Salvador. Um, there, the activists have been um, working very diligently, very hard for a long time on trying to get basic protections, such as um, non-discrimination laws for LGBTI, for example, um, hate crime laws protection, and um, name and gender change, for example. Now, <clears throat> I mean, this is 2019, and certainly Nicole could tell you she has been working on those issues for many years while she was living in El Salvador. We, uh, the other organization that I work with, which is Aldis, we've been working on that on those three since 2013. And frankly, we haven't gotten very far. Um, the one law that was, that we were able, between the community and all, all their international supporters, including the United States Embassy in El Salvador, was the uh, hate crime aggravated penalty law in El Salvador. So what they did, they passed a law that says, okay, if you committed a hate crime, you're going to get, I don't know, 60 years or something um, added to your uh, jail sentence. The problem is that the, these cases, these hate crime cases, which are usually murders um, and oftentimes murders of trans women, basically they don't investigate them. No one's ever brought, no one's ever jailed, arrested. I, maybe one or two in, out of hundreds of cases have been tried, but that's it. You're never going to be able to apply that penalty. So the, the law there is very weak and it remains weak. And unfortunately, the legislators passed a law, I think now maybe three years ago, Nicole, which is um, prohibiting same-sex marriage. So instead of getting better, it got worse. But the real, the other issue, and I think Julie spoke about, it, is that the cultural norms. You know, so actually we could have the laws if ideally the laws were passed tomorrow. Great. But then the society, the culture doesn't accept them. And I think a good example is Nicaragua, no, Honduras, which is a very... Well, it's, it's got a lot of challenges, right? Honduras, anyway, economically and socially and all of that. But they were able to get a few laws, and I think it was because of U.S. involvement and pressure for protections for LGBT folks. That would have been maybe six years ago or so. But the fact is that the community has not uh, benefited from those laws. It's still a very homophobic uh, country, and um, yeah, so you can, you can have laws, but it doesn't mean that things will change or for the betterment. Of course, we're still trying to apply the law because, you know, that's what we need to do. But also the cultural has to come along. I mean, I, this is a question I think for all of you. You know, one way of looking at this is that we're still sort of trying to unravel the British Empire, that, you know, British law sort of deliberately persecuted our communities, our populations. And so, you know, and unfortunately, this was what, right, 25% of the world. How would you go about changing the laws of countries that have, that, 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 you know, are so rooted in their colonial pasts? Maybe, Anna, you want to kick off with that? I, to tell you the truth, I'm not even sure if that's an argument. <laughs> For one, yeah, of course, it was took place. But you also have to realize that within the colonial situation. It wasn't ideal. <laughs> and we're talking about how many, I don't know, hundreds of countries. So I myself would never go there and blame it on the British. I think it would just be so specious, you know, and I don't think I'd get anywhere with that argument. <laughs> but yeah, there's legacies, of course, of, um, of colonialism, and they might have an impact now, 
they may not so much. Um, the world has changed a lot, right? And with technology and communication, you see huge changes. Um, and what's interesting too is when you look at you know, poorer nations and people who are less technologically evolved, the fact is that they very quickly pick up on it, everything. So um, I'm not sure how strong that legacy necessarily is. Of course, um, religion plays a great part in it, yeah. Uh, usually when you have much more liberal country that supports LGBTI rights, they're usually not countries that are so heavily embedded in religion. So of course, yeah, England was Christian, um, but I wouldn't put all the blame on them. Well, I disagree. I give the British a fair amount of responsibility, and they should. And, the, and, and I, I mean, the they're Spanish not the, too. The, exactly, <laughs> and the French. There, there are but, multiple colonizers. Yeah, but I do think, and I do think that the UK is actually finally taking some of their rightful responsibility for the Commonwealth countries. And at a, at a program of decriminalization, and the UK government just became the co-chair of the Equal Rights Coalition, a, a body of governments that are working together on LGBT rights. I think um, a number of LGBT groups, I mean, you know, take the biggest, you know, the HRC of the UK, Stonewall, finally a few years ago changed their mission to um, include a global program, and there's a plethora of new new groups and, and you know, taking good responsibility for that horrible legacy. At the same time, they can't do the work for folks in countries. And I think there's a very solid argument from if you talk to any activist in, you know, in a former colonized country, you know, of both, um, you know, there's homegrown homophobia, you know, and to Anna's point that typically comes out of religion. And so I think, you know, the, the other equally important long-term social change agent is to really have LGBT affirming faith leaders of, of substance and in mainline churches and mosques and synagogues, you know, coming out and doing their part to undo the hatred and the extremism that we're seeing everywhere in the world. Yeah. And George, you were... Um, you also wanted to reflect back on that comment, and 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 maybe particularly you could reflect on the decriminalization in Botswana, you know, the the extreme of having Kenya reaffirm the illegality of homosexuality versus what happened in Botswana. Kenya's not over. Yeah, mm -hmm. Kenya's not over, and I I do think um, I mean I I think we all have to lament the kind of colonial legacy that many countries around the world have to live with and the damage. That, that has taken place as a result. And um, I agree with Anna in the sense that, you know, um, lingering in that lament is not gonna get us where we need to be, right? And I think advocates, for example, in Botswana realize, realize that. They, they, they decriminalized homosexuality, um, but I think activists are also understanding in Botswana and other places where we've been successful in decriminalizing homosexuality and and really promoting protective laws for LGBTQ uh, communities more widely, that the work is really cultural. It's at the social level that, that we have to work, right? And irrespective of whether we have bad laws or good laws, we still have to change the minds and hearts of people. And uh, we still have to, for example, be in partnership with police departments um, to make sure that they're doing what they need to be doing, to make sure that they're sensitized. We have to make, we have to be in partnership with healthcare providers who, who really in some instances, you know, are the worst perpetuators of stigma and discrimination when they should be really the champions of our rights. So there's still kind of work to be done whether or not we have legal protections. And I think activists around the world recognize that that work is really quite important. Well. I think this would be a great place to open it up to the floor and see if there are questions that people would like to to have. I know I've got one, and maybe, Nicole, you might want to to speak to it. I mean, the, the whole point about a shot in the arm podcast is that we're about global health and human rights and, and how we fit those two together. How do you see health and human rights coming together 
to support LGBTIQ rights around the world. And I'm thinking, you know, we, we had U.S. Congressman T.J. Cox on the show uh, recently who just straight out said health is a human right. But I'm also thinking about it in terms of sexual and reproductive health and, and access to services for our communities. So as you reflect on that, how do you, how do you see um, health and human rights coming together? Well, yeah, talking a little bit about the colonialism and how our country, El Salvador, at least that's the country that I, that I have knowledge, uh, El Salvador claims to be a, secu uh, yeah, a secular country. But in practice, our laws are based in the Bible. But the first uh, law or the first, uh, you know, ideal of how Salvadorian can be portrayed or should be perceived, it is to protect the life in dignity of a Salvadorian. So health is part of protect the life of a person. And protecting the life and the quality of life of a person comes also from access to health. And if those are not linked and are separated, we are doing a directly violation of human rights. And we're actually attempting against life itself. So when these cases of murderers because that's how we mention the trans women held under ICE detention centers, and they die as a consequence of health-related issues with HIV, we are also making accountable and claiming that responsibility of those lives who have been lost. Because the health, the, human, the basic human rights of access of health was denied. And as a consequence, these two ladies were dead and lose their life. So I think that we cannot talk about uh, health separately and how we are going to address from a health perspective without talking about human rights and how are the basis of human rights that is get involved and include all human, human beings. And in any constitutions that I know, specifically said like, uh, oh, if this person is white or if this person is sa-sa-sa, it's just human. And that's the only requirement that it's needed. So if we don't link it and we are not aware of the close relationship that we are having and the impacts of the life that we are doing or not doing with our work, it's going to be very difficult to get the job done. And the only ones who can do this work is ourselves. Nobody's going to do it for us. Okay, let's, let's take a question from the floor. I can see a gentleman here who uh, I know has a question. So can I give you the microphone? Hello, everyone. I'll just ask you to introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. First. Hello, my name is uh, Kuko. And uh, I'm a health educator. And I've been working in the area of public health for, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> I was actually very young when I started. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you to every one of you and uh, for what you do. And um, global health is, you know, here at the local level, you know, it does impact our communities. You know, we're with the migration, uh, what we see in the media, foreign policies, right? So you know, we are connected. So I appreciate the work that you do. And um, I wanted to. I have a question, but before I ask the question, I just kind of want to kind of clear things up, you know. But before I said that, I just wanted to thank you, though, for what you, for what you said. I'm also very hopeful for the future. I think throughout history, throughout any throughout any social movements, civil rights movements, you know, uh, women's rights movements, you know, they took place and they were effective because there was a crisis, a crisis, social crisis. And I think the president is doing exactly that. So he's leaving the 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 creating spaces like this so we can come together and have a dialogue, you know, about social justice. You know, it's gonna take a long time, but but I'm very hopeful. You know, I'm very hopeful that that we can, you know, the global family, we can come together and work around these issues. So so about the colonialism thing, you know, I'm just very like this is a question that I have for you. What are you doing to directly address the problem? So their problem is white brainwashing. 
right? Because even the concept of LGBT is very new, right? And before the 1400s, you know, cross-dressing, it was not really a big deal, you know? So, you know, I know you guys talked about religion, you know? Um, but, you know, I'm more concerned, though, about in terms of white brainwashing, especially gay white brainwashing, it's about the theoretical frameworks that are used in treatment and prevention, you know? I mean, the bio bio biological model focuses on the disease, right? So when you see a trans woman or a trans man or a gay man, we're, tr we're focusing on preventing HIV or treating HIV, right? But we forget that connection of the mind and the body, the essence of the person, right? And that notion is so embedded in treatment, right? Because when somebody's HIV positive, what you do? Give them pills, drugs, right? And um, so, so the question I have for you is, since I know you guys are doing work at the global level, you know, I know that there are some parts of the world the gay flag is actually a symbol of white supremacy, right? I know that because I'm part of indigenous myself and I'm part of communities where we have tried really, really hard to present our culture, right? Our own notion of gender, what does that mean, right? How would we value you as a human being, right? What does our history, our codes, our uh, oral stories tell us about gender and sexuality? So I'm part of communities where that's still intact. So the question I have for you is, what have you guys seen around the world when you guys go to communities where they haven't been touched by West, this notion Western of what is the LGBT or what does the gay flag mean for you or HIV drugs, HIV, right? And, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm not quite sure how to put it together, but it's, uh, it's about getting down to the essence of the person. And it goes back to what you were saying about the role of culture, right? Around the culture. And uh, here in the United States, we have this concept of cultural competency, which is what I do, you know? for you know, what I'm trying to do. And uh, so it's really interesting that we see like organizations that again, follow uh, Western frameworks of health, definitions of health and treatment, and they put someone of color, you know, like her. But you know, when it comes down to policy, you know, when it comes down to like grant writing, you know, the representation of the community, you know, that's, I'm not quite sure if you really get a chance to be part of that, but I don't think you do, because I used to <laughs> collaborate with your organization. Um, so. So yeah, so I know you guys have more experience and been doing more work globally. So I just like to know how you guys address that concept in terms of the, the Western framework of health and treatment and that kind of stuff. It is an extremely powerful question that you've put to us. And I, I, I think I'd love everyone to answer it. I mean, maybe George, we could start with you. Sure. Impact is a global organization. Your sense of that. And about HIV is Latinos and blacks who are experiencing the highest rate. So yeah, this is a huge problem. Yeah. Here in the United States, and I, I, I started my, my, my remarks by kind of talking about how HIV is not evenly distributed in the population, and that certain groups, you know, shoulder disproportionate burden, and it's not by accident, right? So we could talk about class inequality, we could talk about, you know, sexism and gender inequality, we could talk about homophobia and racism, all of those things operate, and those are not specific to the U.S., nor are those dynamics specific to the global north. Uh, when you go all over the world, you see same kind of dynamics, uh, discrimination, stigma, violence, right, that are driven by people's uh, prejudices around race and class and gender and sexual orientation. Um, so uh, when you talk about Western frames, uh, people around the world talk about stigma, discrimination, violence. Uh, uh, for people who are different, who love different, who look different, right? Who kind of move away from cultural norms. Um, the other thing I'd say that uh, is true and uh, is pretty universal in the work that I do at the global level is that there is a recognition of fundamental uh, basic human, human rights principles. And those principles are around self-determination and bodily autonomy. Um, and it, it doesn't matter what people call that around the world, it's the same. It's this kind of um, desire for state actors to leave their hands off of our bodies. And it's a desire for state actors to respect, you know, our right to make determination about how we live our lives, period. There's no, you know, there are no labels that are kind of Western oriented in that. The last thing I'll say is that when we do our work, we do our work to support local communities because we understand that change happens from bottom up, right? We have to ensure that communities are supported, they're funded, um, that they're technically uh, able to, you know, lobby their respective governments and the people who are making decisions. 
And they do that in terms that they understand. We don't come and bring terms and insist that people use terms that we're bringing, right? We really want to honor local knowledge and want to honor local meaning and the way that people um, describe themselves and describe the work. But it's really important that we support activists, grassroots organizations who are doing this work to, to create safe space like this, places where people could come together to share, exchange knowledge, and to strategize about how to make change. Thanks, George. Anna, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think it's a fascinating situation that you brought up, and it's huge in terms of um, the future, I think, of communities that uh, we're talking about, right, that are not necessarily mainstream, don't are not in the economic mainstream. Now, we have a, a, a number of I would say challenges with that. For one, the, U the United States is very dominant in the world over its uh, culture, its values, its myths. <laughs> um, we also live in a capitalist world, and that has a huge force. And you can see that huge force in terms of HIV medication, drugs, uh, the pharmaceuticals. I mean, you're talking billions of dollars. And those, those, those businesses are very heavily invested in however they keep the management of their drugs, their sales, the distribution, et cetera, et cetera. So those are huge issues. Um, and again, with technology, the U.S. dominates even more so. I mean, I'm surprised that I, I will go to, let's say, El Salvador. Everything on the computer is English. So it's like, you have to, you have to know English to know what's going on, you know? I mean, it's that, it's, that, um, it's that forceful. But that's all over the world, not just in small El Salvador, right? Um, so it's like we, we, we need to make some space where maybe some indigenous groups or local groups are able to define. Because, you know, apparently in Africa, some people, I think that's why you call it men who have sex with men, because they don't identify as gay, even though they have sex with men. And they use, they use local terms to describe who they are, yes. right? Yeah. In the, Philippine, in the Philippines, I think they also have very unique ways of Oh, you're Filipino. <laughs> ways of identifying themselves. So, you know, there's a lot of different cultural norms, right? But right now it seems that it's the U.S. norm that, that dominates. Uh -huh. And so, um, and it doesn't leave room for, for others. So I want, I want to take an opportunity to give a shout out to the international indigenous HIV AIDS community, who is a group that we all know very well and we've all been involved with and uh, they're very active in this sphere. Um, but Nicole, your thoughts? <laughs> well, um, one of the things that I want to say is that I've been living here in the US for four years now. So many of the concepts I can, I can share and I really appreciate the question because many of the concepts based in the language is totally different to our, my culture in particular. So as an indigenous woman, for me, it's very important to address how we talk about our diversity. For example, in, in El Salvador, we don't say LGBTQI+, we just say just sexual diversity. And we don't name it in the same way. And actually the challenges that for communities, particular communities that are facing different challenges in access to health, for example, it is how they can be perceived and how they can have or not have access to health, in this case, HIV. For example, the assumption how the identity or how gender is expressed and how people are addressing them. <clears throat> we have different uh, situations with trans women, our participants that are going, or they're rather stay home <laughs> instead of going to a clinic to get access because they are misgendered or they are being named in a way that is 
totally disrespectful for them. So it is, it's interesting, for example, the way how the languages can, be, can bring us together, but also can separate us. And the awareness of that, for example, the, the, the term they, uh, that's a word in uh, Spanish, which is a, you know, a colonial language as well. Uh, the term they doesn't exist in Spanish. But this gender uh, language and indigenous culture, it does exist. So as an indigenous, we have other terms that are gender neutral, but they have been lost in, for many reasons. And historically reasons, in particular in Sabo, we have a dictator in 1932 that it was an extermin, they did a genocide of indigenous people. So how we can address and how we can bring together and start in healing journeys. And for me, that's important, the perspective that you say that have the mind and the body and not only the biometrics involved in this case to respond to HIV because, or any other health challenges. Because, uh, you know, I've been working, I'm an art therapist and I've been working as, as a therapist for 11 years now. And for me, the healing journeys are crucial to get people into get better. And actually a person who is empowered and self-determination that, that you mentioned before, for me it's so important as well to mention. If people are not aware and if people are facing other challenges in their life, it's very hard to, to get involved and get into the table and have open and honest conversations and where everybody's included in here. Thank you. So we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour and I've got one question for the panel uh, before we wrap up. Oh, is there another question from the floor? I, did I see a hand go? No. And my question, and I'm going to start with you, Julie, so warning, is this event coincides with Pride. So what does Pride mean to you? And uh, will you be marching Sunday? Ooh, he did warn us about this question. And, um, and I warned you that I'm slightly jaded, but, um, you know, I, I guess I, I've been to pride marches everywhere in the world, and I guess I just want to sort of link it to the question that was just asked. Um, as a white American who's had the privilege of spending time in a lot of different countries, I think, yeah, I would only be even mildly successful in the work that I do if I didn't have a huge amount of humility and curiosity and openness to difference because there is so much to learn and appreciate and be inspired by if you're really open to what's authentically there. Um, and, and there's just, you know, a, a huge fantastic world out there that is both influenced by the United States and not. I mean, as, as you were talking, I was like, yes, we live in a hyper-globalized, fast information, get, you know, transferring place. But I was in the middle of Nigeria having a meeting with a group of Muslim, gay, you know, activists from a very remote part of, the, of that big country, very diverse country, in a place where Sharia law is, in, you know, where they could die for, you know, and they had all watched Pose. You know, like, you know, so there's, there's also this kind of beauty in, um, you know, in appreciating one another and, and having some common language and, and, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's not quite as polarized as I think we, we, we sometimes see um, coming from this, this country. And to that point, you know, I do think, you know, the, whether it's the symbol of the rainbow flag or it's the pride march. I mean, pride is celebrated every month of the year somewhere in this world. It's not all in June. Um, and to be able to see, you know, it as a liberating um, uh, event and a mobilizing, organizing tool by really diverse countries and places. And I mean, I was just so excited last week to see the news coming out of Ukraine um, where just a few years ago, their Pride March was a bloody, violent event. Um, and they had thousands of people in a perfectly peaceful march a couple weeks ago. I mean, that's huge progress. And for that 
particular movement with their new president and maybe an opportunity for some real change. Like, you know, and, you know, that's just one example of hundreds that one could, could give. And so, so Pride is a critically important mobilizing or event in many, many parts of the world. And even if they have no understanding of what happened at Stonewall, or even if they have the wrong understanding of what happened at Stonewall. Um, personally, I'm going to not be marching this year, but my children are. So I feel like, you know, now that I'm this age, I can take a break. And I'm ha I've marched many, many years and in many places. And, um, and I'm actually relaxing before I take about a month of travel. But if I were in town... The other big event that I would want to do on Sunday, which would be a hard choice, is to watch Castor Semenya running at Stanford. I don't know how many of you are following Castor Semenya, but she's an amazing South African Olympic 800-meter uh, uh, athlete runner, and um, she's in the midst of one of the most important big global fights for what is... What does it mean to be a woman? And as a person with an intersex condition, she happens to have a little bit more testosterone than your average woman, and they think that she should be taking medically unnecessary. Anyway, it's a very important case, so watch that space. There's lots of important things that are going on right now everywhere in the world. Watch those spaces, stay educated, keep talking about them. It makes a difference. Anna, what does pride mean for you? Well, let's see, I've only been to two pride marches, or in two places, San Francisco and El Salvador. And when I was in El Salvador, one of the, the leaders of the gay, uh, gay men's organization, William, says, well, you know, we don't do it on the same day as the North Americans do it, and we're not celebrating Stonewall. I forget what he told me that, that was the celebration, but anyway. Uh, so they were trying to make it more of a Salvadorian type of a uh, pride uh, march. And I did participate in one a couple of years ago, and uh, it was very well done, very well organized, fairly large, I would say. But there were two things. Um, one, I mean, I was just so impressed by the bravery of the folks marching, because it's such a hostile environment. I mean, I didn't see anything that was really hostile or violent or anything like that. There were a lot of cops, of course, you know, there, making sure nothing went wrong. But, um, yeah, the bravery of the folks getting out there and marching like that out in the public, it was, I mean, it, it was just overwhelming to me emotionally. And, um, but, you know, right after that march, a couple of our, our friends got beat up, right? Trans men and what have you. So things ostensibly were okay, but not so okay. Um, so the other thing that I noticed about El Salvador, which I thought was maybe missing, was like an international contingency. And I was thinking, hey, how come everybody's in San Francisco and they're all marching, there are thousands of them, they're having big parties. It's like, hey, why don't you come here <laughs> and march in this march and support the people here in El Salvador? You know, it's not just a big party. It's still a very political, you know, uh, thing that, people are doing, and they are risking their safety in that. So, you know, um, I will march, but like I said, I, I wish that we could do more of international kind of exchange around that. Nicole, will you be marching? I'm not. <laughs> I'm flying that day. So I have a previous uh, uh, commitment uh, during this week, next coming week. So I'm not going to be marching. I'm going to march though this Friday, the 28th, at the Trans March. And also I'm going to be marching on the Dykes March. So I'm not going to be on Pride the, like uh, on Sunday, but I'm going to be on Trans and Dykes. Fantastic. Do you know, my first Pride was completely by accident in London in 1986. I was, I was in the uh, South Bank Centre of London um, trying to go to the National Theatre, there were all these pink balloons. Earth is going on. And it wasn't until I got into the theatre that I realised I was in Pride. Most extraordinary. <laughs> George, what does Pride mean to you? Well, pride means a lot of things to me, Ben. Thank you for the question. And uh, I, I suppose Pride is always a reminder of resistance, right? Like I, 
And this year in particular, because this, in the United States, it marks a very, very important anniversary, the anniversary of the Stonewall riots, which really kind of um, catalyzed the LGBT movement in the U.S. So um, it is a reminder of resistance, and it reminds me of what it takes to resist oppression and uh, homophobia and transphobia and sexism and racism. It is also, to me, an opportunity for communities to come together um, to celebrate, to celebrate our community, to celebrate our, ourselves, and to celebrate the hard-fought rights that we have now. Uh, it is an opportunity to reflect where that's not happening and where people are living under oppression and um, there's still quite a bit of work to be done. Uh, it is, to me, about showing up and how you show up. Uh, to me, Pride is about speaking out and calling out bullshit when we see it. And um, and I think finally pride to me is uh, about connecting the dots, right? To making sure that we understand that when we um, fight homophobia, it's equally important to fight anti-immigrant sentiment and to fight you know class inequality and to fight racism. Those things are all related and they all impact the LGBTQ community. And so, and the fact that we could come together um, and to connect those dots makes me really quite proud to be a part of the movement. What a brilliant way to end the show. So with that, everybody, please join me in thanking our panelists. Thanks again to the LGBTQ Center here in Oakland and have a great week. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to our panellists and the good folk of Impact and the LGBTQ Centre in Oakland. Thanks to Eric Espera, our producer, and his team Jay Fills and Stephen Thorpe. Thanks to the German Schlager electro band Rosenstolz. We have been watching Dark on Netflix, um, and it's extraordinary how the show's subtitles are helping me after 30-odd years or so understand the band's own Dark lyrics. Who knew? The event was recorded on June the 26th, 2019 at the Oakland LGBTQ Centre. And as Julie Dorf says, Pride is every day, every year. So happy Pride, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>